Hey, what's up? What's up? It's your girls. I'm Rissy and I'm Shelves. And this is the podcast I totally relate. Oh my gosh. Well, welcome back to the podcast, everybody. We have a very intriguing, interesting guest with us today. We are so happy to introduce Michael Weiss to the podcast. Thanks for coming. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. I'm excited to have this conversation. I've heard a little bit of your story. Uh, I would love for you to just share with us what you do now and then help us understand how you got to that. Sure. So I do a lot of different things right now. I worked in the drug and alcohol treatment industry for about the last 10 years. Um, I worked for various treatment centers um, for the first eight years of that time and learned a lot about what to do, what never to do, a whole lot of great (laughs) life lessons. You know, sometimes the most... um, difficult and disastrous of those places that I worked at ended up being my greatest teachers. So, you know, there was something to learn in all of that. And, you know, in the last two years, I've kind of broken away. I decided to finally open my own business. I actually opened two different businesses to kind of fill the gaps that I saw in these treatment in the treatment industry and, um, you know, work more closely with individuals doing deeper work. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of these facilities are fantastic and they do uh, they do a good job. But when you have 35 people and one therapist running a group, it's very difficult to go deep, you yeah. know, with anybody. And, um, you know, some of them are ready to do that deeper work. And so I decided to open up uh, my business, which is called Michael Weiss Mentoring. And I work one-on-one with people who are struggling with mental health and with substance abuse issues. It's it's been amazing. It yeah. really has been amazing. I've I've had the opportunity to work with some amazing people and to offer support to people in a non-traditional way. Yeah. Some of the things that really sparked my interest because I'm in recovery myself were some of these alternative uh, healing modalities that I was sometimes briefly introduced to and sometimes had to seek out on my own after I actually left treatment. And um, I got more and more involved with some of the Native American healing traditions Mm. and some uh, shamanic healing traditions. And so my groups combine kind of more traditional approaches to um, substance abuse and recovery with some more, quote, alternative. I don't think they're alternative. You know, they're just different um, um, shamanic uh, practices that allow people to really get in touch with that deeper part of themselves, that part that sometimes remains hidden for a really long time Mm. and and get to understand where their pain lives and have an opportunity to actually address it and to love those parts of themselves that have needed that love for so long and ultimately find um, some peace, you know, some some real peace. A lot of um, Western medicine right now is symptom relief and symptom management. Mm. And, you know, instead of cutting off the branches of a tree and watching the tree continue to grow, if you can actually get down to the roots you're going to actually figure out how to stop the problem from continuing, you know? And so that's the kind of work that I've really been interested in doing with people. I do um, something called shamanic drumming, which is using using, um, a very specific tempo of drumming um, that creates a frequency that will actually help put you in an altered state of consciousness. Um, It will actually put you in what's called a trance state. It's similar Mm. to that of deep meditation. I like to describe it as Kind of like that time when you go to lay down to go to sleep at night and you're not really in a deep sleep yet, but you're not really awake anymore. You know, that yeah. in-between space. Yeah. And that space affords us like an amazing opportunity to um, process things in a little bit of a different way than we normally do. Yeah. And so by guiding people through this technique, they're able to feel their way through their problems rather than try and think their way through. Yeah. You know, because I tried to think my way through my own drug problems. Um, I went to graduate school to get a master's degree in psychology because I thought I could figure out how to stop using drugs if I could figure out logically, rationally why I was doing it. And I ended up with a master's degree and a needle in my arm. You know, it it didn't work. It didn't work. And we grow up in a culture that sometimes isn't really uh, 
not that they're not supportive, but nobody really teaches you yeah. how to do that work, yeah. right? Yeah. And so a lot of this was brand new to me when I started my journey in recovery. And I really had to seek out mentors and teachers that could show me these different ways of doing deeper healing. Um, and so I think they're one of the reasons I'm so excited to do this today is to let people know that these things exist. Yeah. Because a lot of people don't even know yeah. um, that these things are out there. And they're not new. I mean, these practices are thousands of years old, yeah. you know, oh. and from all around the world. They're real medicine. They yeah. really are. So. Yeah. Do you feel like you've kind of met some negative connotations or n narratives around like when you're like, oh, this is what I do. And people are like, oh, like. Oh, absolutely. Okay. I mean, absolutely. And like, you know, when I, whenever I go in, I run these in larger groups at treatment centers too, because yeah. I want to bring this drumming into treatment centers and give them another opportunity to find something that resonates with them. Yeah. And the way I start the group is always by giving the warning that the biggest barrier to to this experience is going to be your own mind. Yeah. You know, mm. your judgment, your own right. judgment about what you're doing. Right. Exactly. And the more you can let go of those preconceived notions and stay open and curious, the more likely it is that you're going to have a meaningful experience and actually leave here feeling lighter than when you walked in. Yeah. And, and I think that's true for most everything. Yeah. You know, yeah. we approach things with stories that are so old mm -hmm. you know most of the decisions we make today aren't even being made from today they're being made from stories that started at birth you yeah. know and so getting to a place where we understand you know all those different stories that we hold on to and how they affect the way we show up in the world gives us an opportunity to decide which ones are useful and then which ones need to be rewritten yeah you know but until we know that that's even an opportunity we're stuck and we don't even know it yeah you know right. so it's um, it's really fun to watch people all of a sudden recognize that they have a say. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, wait a minute. Hold on. There's a committee in my head, but I have a seat at the table now. Yeah. <laughs> and that's amazing. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, can you take us back to maybe the first time that you remember trying to get out of your own pain or, or try to he feel better about your own pain. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's old. It's yeah. very old, you know, and I think for most of us, there's some part of our childhood that is painful and we're trying to feel okay from, you know. Yeah. And for me, it started when I was very young. I grew up in a pretty normal family on the East Coast. I had a ton of anxiety. You know, my family, and I'll start by saying, I know for a fact that every single one of us was doing the absolute best we can. This is not about judgment or blame, but there were times where you know, my emotional needs weren't met as yeah. a kid. And that's okay, you know. But the first time, I would say around six years old is when I started actually using food to cope with my feelings. Because as yeah. a six-year-old, that's the thing that's most readily available yeah. to us, you know. Yeah. I've had a weird relationship with food since about that age. And I've had struggles with it. And something I've had to, to continuously work at through my teenage years, I actually developed an eating disorder, which I'm glad to talk about in a public setting because yeah, no. men don't talk about uh -uh. this no and no. um it makes it more difficult you yeah. know it really does it's it's it i'm still working on getting over the shame of this of you shouldn't be dealing with this as mm. a man you know and the more i can bring this into the light of day the more i can keep healing that you know yeah. that wound yeah. um but i was using food and binging and purging and and y you know it provided me some temporary relief yeah. some numbing from the pain yeah i had some tr other traumatic stuff go through going on through my childhood none of which is really important to talk about in specific detail but i had a very tough time growing up yeah. i really did i was bullied at school quite often for my weight which is really the irony or the the um the terrible cycle of not feeling okay and using feel to food to feel okay, but then getting negative social feedback from the yeah. way I looked, you yeah. know, from the food that I was using to feel okay. Wow. It was, it felt like there was no way to win, yeah. you know? And so I very quickly felt like giving up, yeah. you know? So that thing that you used to help feel better mm -hmm. compromised your ability to fit in or to be accepted absolutely among your like so then now now you're feeling more isolated. isolation yeah. and the tool that helps you is, is what's isolating me at the yeah. same time yeah and you know i even from a you know 
my family history, we've had some significant illness in the last couple generations of our family, which is most likely tied to intergenerational trauma. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that was always a big health, co- there was always like a health scare in my house. It was mm, like, yeah. you can't do this, you can't do that. You know, if you're overweight, you're going to have a heart attack, you're going to die. So that was another piece that I was yeah. also dealing with. It was like, wait a minute, hold on. Like, so now I'm going to die too. This is This is really hard to deal with. So yeah, it was kind of coming from all all areas, you yeah. know. Yeah, it was definitely yeah. tough. Around the age of thirteen or so, I remember still being at a friend's house, and we snuck his parents' beer in the basement, you know, mm-hmm. and decided to drink. And again, I had that feeling that I used to get from food. It's like, whoa, here's the answer to my problems, you know. Yeah. I don't feel so terrible right now. I don't have anxiety. I'm not crawling out of my skin, and I really quickly was like. Yeah this is going to be helpful and this is going to be a problem at the same time. You know, even from the beginning, I just knew that this was going to be hard to control. Yeah. Um, And so whenever I would get alcohol or access to it, which as a 13-year-old isn't very regularly, but I would just binge drink. I would drink and I'd get sick. And then even after being sick, I'd wait to do it again, you know, Um, because it provided temporary relief, you know. And, And one of the things I truly believe is that, you know, addiction isn't the problem. Addiction's really a symptom of the problem. Yeah. It's an attempt to solve a problem. Yes, absolutely. You know? and, and that's exactly what I was always looking for, was something to just feel okay. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, after that, I found pot at about, oh, I think I was 14 years old, and I loved it. In fact, I, I remember my friends, no, nobody I was friends with wanted to do that yet. Everybody was freaked out because they had the dare officer come yeah. in, right? And my, <laughs> it my, is the gateway drug. Right, exactly. <laughs> yep, I remember. I knew I was in trouble because when the dare officer came in, they brought this big display board that had all the different paraphernalia and all the drugs. Mm-hmm. Mind you, before they got there, I had no idea any of this existed in the yeah. world. And by the time they left, I was like, I want to try that one, and that one, <laughs> and that one, and that one. Plants and seeds. Yeah. So yeah. thank you, Dare Officer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Officer Chuck was his name, actually. I remember him still. Um, but it, it was not helpful at all. It just yeah. piqued my interest because all yeah. of a sudden, wait, there's all these More. ways I can change the way I feel, and I feel terrible, yeah. you know? And then I continued to experiment with those things. Yeah. Moved into harder and harder drugs. In college, I used cocaine for the first time. And it, cocaine's an interesting one for me because I absolutely hate it, and I absolutely couldn't stop doing it. And so it was like, I would be that paranoid person who nobody wanted to be around and I would hate myself and I would hate the way I felt. And I would hate that the next day I'd go buy more because I just couldn't stop. Uh, You know, back in 2000 was kind of like that boom of the Oxycontin era. Oh yeah. And as soon as I found opiates, it was over because I, it was like, you know, the only way to describe it was like a warm, safe blanket. You know, it felt like the hug I had always been looking for growing up. Mm. And as soon as I felt that, it was like, this is it. I have no more problems, you know? And nobody tells you what comes with that. Well, I mean, at that point, they were telling you, they advertised Oxycontin is, uh, it doesn't cause addiction. Like, you yeah. can't get addicted to it. And right. so, thus the opioid, the opioid epidemic, for yeah. sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm living proof that that's not true. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you yeah. know, um, and it, it it has caused a lot of pain in the area that I grew up. Lots of people that I was friends with are now dead or in prison, and it's it, it just it completely uprooted my entire life. And uh, you know, I found oxycontin, and I did that for several years, and my habit grew exponentially. Because the other thing they don't tell you when you first try it is that tolerance is a thing. Right. Yeah. So all of a sudden, that one forty-dollar pill that used to last me two days now lasts me two hours, and I get violently ill if Ugh. I don't have it. Yeah. And so I went, you know, uh, from forty dollars a day to about two hundred and fifty dollar a day habit as a twenty-year-old, as a college student. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And so I was working. I was going to college and working like eighty hours a week. Sometimes, you know taking all sorts of random jobs and gigs to just have enough money to not be sick. It was awful. It was really awful. And then back in about 2003, 
the FDA came out and said, wait a minute, OxyContin isn't really that safe. And all of it overnight just got pulled from the shelves. Yeah. All of a sudden, the doctors that were prescribing to everybody was were not prescribing to anyone unless you were like a terminal cancer patient. And so what do you do? I'm completely hooked on this drug and I have no access to it. I talked to a friend who says, well, it's okay because, you know, this $6 bag of heroin will get you as high as that $40 pill. Again, what they don't tell you is tolerance, right? So that $6 bag turned into $300 a day by the end. It just wreaked havoc. And, you know, the relief I actually felt from opiates lasted for about a week. And then the next nine years of my life was just trying to feel like I did that first week and never actually getting there. So it was like all my original issues were still there. And I added this whole other layer of just pain and misery on top of it. And my life became completely unmanageable and completely out of control. I lost a lot of relationships in my life through that. Um, I hurt a lot of people. I did a lot of things that I would have never done um, sober. There's no way. There'd be no need to. And, you know, I think... One of the reasons I started working in this industry after I went to treatment and got help myself was I started to recognize that, you know, there is such a stigma in this country about drug abuse and drug mm -hmm. addiction. Mm -hmm. And we've turned this into a moral failing. Mm -hmm. And it's not. And we have so much, we have years and years of science that tell us it's not. You know, nobody would choose to be a heroin addict. Mm -mm. You know, and unfortunately, without those mentors and teachers that I was talking about earlier being there to kind of guide us and, you know, having rites of passage to help us grow in a healthy way, um, we look for comfort in whatever we can find, yeah. you know. And, you know, I would argue that parts of our society are incredibly ill as well. Yeah. You know, I think it's no surprise that the opioid epidemic is still here oh, yeah. with all of the turmoil we see in our country right now. Mm -hmm. People are always just trying to feel okay, you yeah. know, and we'll do whatever we can to get there. And it doesn't have to be drugs or alcohol. It can be food. It can be gambling. It can be work. It can be sex. It can be exercise. I mean, we can turn anything into a coping mechanism, yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. All it is is an attempt to feel okay for a little while, yeah. you know. Like, can you maybe dig into a little bit more about, like, what that moral failing felt like? Like, did you get that from your parents? Was it like you were trying to hide things from roommates or loved ones so you you didn't end up in jail or have the cops called? Like, what did that, how did you experience that feeling of moral yeah, failing? Um, it was a 24-7 job to hide who I was from everybody so that mm. I could continue to do the things I needed to do to feel okay. I mean, yeah. I was hiding every aspect of my life yeah. to the fact to the point where when I finally went to treatment and finally got sober, I had to learn how to not lie. Yeah. I mean, I really did because it was never safe for anybody to know where I was or what I was doing or how I was when I was using back then. Mm -hmm. And so I got really good at covering my tracks. Um, yeah, of course, my parents loved me and were worried about me. And, you know, sometimes that concern didn't translate into what I really needed. Yeah. Um, I knew they were doing the best that they could, but without an education and understanding to what I was going through, all they could do was throw threats my way. Punishment. You know, punishment. punishment. Yeah, do you, exactly. exactly. Do you feel like a lot of that is, though, too, is because you've talked about intergenerational uh, trauma mm -hmm. where it's th the them not having done the work that they needed to self-regulate and then you having the leftovers of that almost do you feel like that is absolutely what's absolutely. going on here yeah and again without blame or judgment absolutely it's, it's um yes. you know i think we've been afforded our generation has been afforded the luxury of time and security in the yeah. sense that my parents parents grew up in the great depression um my parents were children of parents who were in the Great Depression. So always worrying about security and money and the things that we need to, to stay safe was always at the forefront of their mind. My family's history, I can tell you, there's tons of trauma dating back to fleeing Europe, you know. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of them never did that work. And maybe they didn't have the luxury of the time and space to actually do it. Yeah. You know, my dad's dad passed away when he was 14 years old and they owned a small convenience store. So at 14, my dad had to run a store. When was he going to have time to actually do this work, you know? Mm -hmm. And then um, he spent his whole life um, trying to provide for us and make sure that we had everything we need. Um, you know, that came at a different cost, right? So like yeah. I didn't want for material things so much, 
but I had emotional needs that weren't being met. Mm. And, you know, I remember my dad telling me, he sat me down one day and said, you know, Mike, I just need to be honest with you. My dad died when I was 14 years old. After you turn 14, I don't know what I'm doing, you know? And I actually really appreciate that insight and that clarity that he had to tell me that. But at the same time, it kind of left me in in a way to raise myself, yeah. you know? I do absolutely believe one of my favorite quotes is, is um, I'm going to butcher it, but I'm going <laughs> to say it anyway. The unexamined life of the parent becomes the legacy of the child. Yeah. And it's so true. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why I'm doing the work on myself that I'm doing today, because I have three kids and I want them to mm-hmm. be able to let go of the stuff that I had been carrying, you yeah. know, and that only happens with me taking responsibility for my pain and taking the time to do that work. And I've, I know it makes a difference, Yeah, you know, yeah. and that's not to say they're not going to have their own stuff to work on, but maybe their plate's a little less full because of the work that I've done on myself mm-hmm. and that my wife has done on herself, you know, yeah. and that's all we can do is yeah. take responsibility for our own stuff, yeah. you know, so. Yeah, like we're never going to reach like some utopia, but maybe if they have less to worry about you know, dealing with the traumas that we inflict on them because we are learning our own accountability. I don't know, maybe they can spend some of that mental bandwidth to like uh, help heal the planet, you know, with like bigger societal things. Absolutely. Um, Because it's not like they won't have work to do. Like, oh, I'm going to make my child's life perfect. It's like, no, there are bigger and better things. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to do my part so that I don't, it's very cyclical. Like you see, like as a parent of two young kids, Mm -hmm. I like watch like, oh no, you just picked up this thing that I never wanted to hand down to you right like it's very cyclical you can see how like we just continue on yeah yeah Um, and so without that own self-awareness it just just snowballed downhill you know well and it's Mm -hmm. so true and you know you know the saying be the change you want to see in the world well the work we do on ourselves isn't just for us it's for our families it's for our relationships it's for our community i always say that when i work with people trying to get sober our recovery doesn't even belong to us because there's a ripple effect to everything we do. And if you start getting healthier and taking care of yourself, the people in your relationship with you are going to feel those changes. They're going to be maybe inspired to make those changes themselves. And again, it spreads, you know, it spreads yeah. itself. And I watch the thing I'm amazed at. My kids are, you know, in their early 20s. They're doing this work already. You know, and it is so freaking cool to see. Yeah. And it, and it gives me a lot of hope. I started late. Maybe I didn't, but, you know, I could have started earlier had I known this was a thing, right? And because our kids have seen me and and my wife do this work, they know that that's an option, you know? And so the more I think we can, you know, not only do our own work, but let other people know that this healing is available, the more likely it is our communities are going to change, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I see. Like, this isn't about blaming. Um, and that that has been an evolution too. I, I when I first started this journey, I had a ton of anger. Yeah, I really did. Over the years, I started to realize, you know, this anger isn't helping. Mm-hmm. You know, what is this anger doing? It's important to feel it and express yeah. it and acknowledge it, but at some point, you have to turn it into something useful. You yeah. Know? And and so learning how to turn it into something useful and turn it into momentum for change yeah was was one of the greatest you know things i had ever been taught yeah at the end of the day anger isn't going to solve anything yeah. you know but also not not recognizing that that anger is there is not going to do anything either it's yeah. also important to take the time to acknowledge how we're feeling because it's valid you yeah. know all feelings are valid and like intentionally feel it mm-hmm. intentionally feel that yeah and find out what's trying to tell you yeah exactly exactly I think a lot of us are afraid of our own emotions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know I certainly was. And um, so I tried to avoid them. I numbed, I ran, I, I did everything I could to not feel the way I was feeling. And it was the weirdest thing because when I finally started doing that, it, it was all, you know, none of it was as bad as the story I made up in my head <laughs> yeah. was. Man, we make the worst stories up about yeah. ourselves. <laughs> yeah. And when we actually look at the honest truth of a situation, we start to recognize the stories I tell myself are so much worse than the reality of whatever it was, even when it's bad, Yeah. you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, that's like that fear, like driving the car. Exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. Whew. Okay, so you're totally inspiring me 100%. I am really curious in 
where you were, you've expressed like this lowness and just not knowing who you are and, you know, this anger that you had. How did you transmute that? Because you said you had a master's degree, Mm -hmm. you know, you've done graduate school and I'm looking at you and you're glowing and you've got these beautiful, clear eyes and you're (laughs) just a beautiful person. And so do you have any like insight that you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, let me think about that. I mean, there have been so many things, <laughs> yeah. you know, there have yeah. been so many things. And, and I will tell you that um, relationships have been the most healing part of my entire life. Mm. I don't, I, I, that's where we can learn the most. And that's why they're so difficult, yeah. right? Like relationships are, I, I've heard it described as the most difficult form of yoga you could possibly practice, <laughs> Yeah, you know, and it is because it, it triggers us, mm-hmm. you know, all this stuff comes up in relationship, but when you can find relationship and community and surround yourself with people who are able to allow you to just be yourself. And when you have the experience of feeling that, it gives you faith that you can be your authentic self and show up and not be rejected. While it's rare, it's not impossible. You know, my wife, my relationship with my wife has been one of the defining features of my own recovery. She's so non-judgmental and so kind and so compassionate. And it was the first relationship in my life where I actually ever experienced that. And now I can trust it, you yeah. know? And now I can show up and if I'm struggling, I can tell her, you know? Yeah. And know that she'll have my back and know that it's gonna be different than that those stories from my past where I can't tell people when I'm struggling because it's not safe. Yeah. I don't believe that anymore, yeah. you know? And that was a game changer. I, I'm just gonna say it, you know, because I think it's important. Um, psychedelics played a huge, huge role in my own healing and they did from a young age um when i was 18 years old i had an experience with uh psilocybin mushrooms where i experienced and we talked about this a little bit where i experienced a a form of ego death and saw the larger picture of things and saw how insignificant some of these painful stories were compared to the awesomeness that is what we really are yeah and I think without those experiences, without that experience specifically, I would have given up. I probably would have overdosed and died. It was the one thing that gave me hope that there is something worth fighting for because I've seen it and I felt it and I tasted it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's a big stigma around psychedelics. Yeah. It's changing dramatically. Yeah. Like if you look at this conversation that we're having in this culture right now, you know, MDMA is in phase three clinical trials. It's going to be a prescribable prescribable medicine very soon. Mm. Um, psilocybin mushrooms have been decriminalized in many different city, large cities in the country. The conversation is shifting because we know that these are tools for change. These are tools for healing when they're used responsibly. Yes. Right? So I can tell you, I know plenty of people and I've done it myself, you know, go to a party and take mushrooms and it's, you know, you're not going to expect yeah. much change or, or healing to happen in that setting. But when it's done with intention and mm-hmm. with the right support and in the right environment and with the right follow-up support after the experience so that you can integrate it, I've seen it. I've seen people completely change. And yeah. when I say completely change, I mean go from being suicidal and not wanting to live to absolutely thriving. Yeah. And how can I deny that that might be a good thing? Yeah, totally. You know, it just, I know people have strong feelings about it and that's okay. You know, I also don't think this is a panacea. I don't think it's for everybody. Mm. Um, and if it's not for you, that's great. But, you know, I have a really hard time telling anybody that they can't do something that might help them. Yeah. You know, oh, that's um, all I can do is worry about myself. Yeah. You know, I don't feel like I have the right to make decisions for other people's bodies and minds. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense to me. So I've continued to do psychedelics um, after being in recovery, maybe once every year or two, maybe every two years. It's not something that, yeah. <laughs> like I don't love and run <laughs> towards it because it's hard work, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like you get to confront the stuff that maybe you've been afraid to do, yeah. too afraid to confront. And I don't know how I could ever look forward to that. Yeah. But I look forward to the effects of that work. Yeah. And so I go into it knowing that it might be difficult, but knowing that that 
you know, I can do difficult things, yeah. you know? And again, when we do these things and they are difficult and we sit through them and we allow ourselves to be with that discomfort, again, we grow in faith that we are capable of doing difficult things. Yeah. And I think that's what real change is all about, yeah. you know? And um, so, yeah, I, I just wanted to throw that plug in there because yeah. it really, really was a defining moment of my life and continues to be an incredibly important tool for my own healing. Yeah. Some of what I do, I work with... Um, ketamine-assisted therapy, work with other people who are undergoing that therapy. Um, and again, I've seen people go from completely suicidal and hospitalized and incapacitated to feeling no thoughts of suicide and being able to slowly integrate those experiences in their life and find joy again. Yeah, yeah joy. I was you know? just about to say, like, opening up when we alleviate something that I think is so profound with psychedelics uh like you said, you're not doing it in your friend's basement. The context right. in uh, which you're consuming and the headspace of what you're entering in really helps uh, these trips, if you will. But I think that also when you can zoom out, when you're not so zoomed in on your life, you mm -hmm. open up room for joy to come in, mm -hmm. yes. which is the one thing I feel so many wounded people are searching for mm -hmm. is the joy and the love and the light. So it opens that window of tolerance up. Yeah. I am so excited to share this episode because I yeah. know, first of all, a lot of these medicines have been like uh, criminalized and taken away from the masses. And so, you know, what have we seen? We've seen such a spike in depression, anxiety, mm -hmm. mental illness. Everyone has mental illness. It's like, well, that's because we have lost a lot of our access to our medicine. Yeah. And instead we're handed a bottle of beer. We're handed pornography were handed like I don't know like yeah. runs the gamut and so yeah I'm really excited to share this episode because as I'm listening to you talk and I'm thinking about all the people that I love um, who have experienced a lot of what you just named mm -hmm. I think so much hope mm -hmm. like oh yeah. my gosh I think that's what's really hard about uh, mental illness, um, suicidal ideation, is that it really sucks all of the hope from the room. It does. Like, it really it's, does. It's low, it's dark, and so listening to you talk feels like a light just turned on. Like, yeah. oh, there's hope. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm glad, because I, I, I believe it. Yeah. I truly believe well, it. Well, I mean, you're you living know? proof of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's, and, and, you know, the other thing that, that is so interesting, and you were talking about this earlier, yes, like that light, seeing that light, and, and being able to experience that joy mm -hmm. is an amazing gift. Yeah. And the beautiful thing about it is that it's not just light and it's not just dark. Mm -hmm. And I think my true healing has come from embracing both of those things, mm -hmm. right? Allowing myself to, to live in that light when I'm feeling it, but also being willing to acknowledge my own shadow, my own pain. Mm -hmm. And the beauty is, honestly, if I talk about things that have helped me in my own life, my pain and my discomfort have been the biggest motivators for the major changes I've made in my life. Yeah. You know, without mm -hmm. pain, we wouldn't do anything, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and maybe that's sad, but I honestly think it's kind of beautiful. I mean, yeah. we can use these things as jumping off points. Yeah. You know, we can look at them as obstacles or we can look at them as opportunities. And mm -hmm. as soon as you can make that perspective shift, all of a sudden, everywhere you look, here are opportunities and teachings. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Always the student, never the expert. Yeah, yeah, beginner's mind, <laughs> yeah, right? Beginner's mind. Trying to get rid of those old stories of the way we think the world are, uh, the world is, and showing up to the way it really is. Yeah, you yeah. know, without judgment mm -hmm. and just letting things be. Yeah, you know, without having, you know, and we all do it, trying to manipulate the world into a thing that looks the way we think it should be yeah. mm. is exhausting. Yeah. yeah. And you know how freeing it is to be able to just show up to all the beautiful horror around the world and <laughs> just say, this is the way it is. And yeah. it's great and it's uncomfortable and it's sad and it's wonderful and it's just all the things. And mm. yeah. I think the more I allow myself to experience all the things, the more full my life gets, yeah. you know. I almost hear you saying like you're alleviating uh, shame mm -hmm. from your life. Yeah. Do you want to dive in? Do you have any wisdom that you'd like to share around shame or any thoughts that you might have? Shame is a really sticky one, you know, because most of us felt shame for the first time when we were little kids, yeah. you know, and it's not because our parents didn't do something right, but we grow up in a culture where 
as a baby, you're taught to act one way to be a good boy or girl and another way you're being bad, yeah. right? And we internalize that. And so from a very young age, we know and have experienced what shame is. And so some of these things are really old dialogues, really mm -hmm. old narratives that have been running through our system for years and years and years. And I think, I think when I've allowed myself to actually honestly confront my own discomfort, my own pain and my own shame, and sit with them quietly, just let them move through my system. Because I think the funny thing about emotions is they just want to be felt. Yeah. And the second we allow ourselves to feel them, they can move through our body, Yeah. you know, and then we don't have to carry them anymore. So I, I don't know that I have a secret. I just know that the more I allow myself to actually feel those the, that shame, that guilt, whatever it may be, the lighter it feels at the end of the day. And, and the other thing is talking, right? Mm. Talking with others and getting Having someone else bear witness to our own struggle yeah. is very powerful. Yeah. You know, which is why if you go to any type of treatment center, there's not just one person in that building, right? Yeah. Because it's a community thing. We need other people to yeah. heal, to mirror for us, and to to witness what we've gone through. The more I'm able to talk about this stuff, the less shame I have to hold on to because the less I have to hide. Mm. Yeah. You know, I, I, I can't sit here and tell you today that I don't have struggles because I do. I mean, my old eating disorder stuff... I maybe don't act on it, but it's certainly still there. Yeah. And it's something mm -hmm. that I still need to deal with. And if I was unwilling to talk about that, it'd be another secret I'd be holding on to. Mm. And, and mm. I don't know how I could move through it by doing that. You yeah, know? Yeah. Can I tell you in the last 10 years, I've never wanted to use drugs again? No. But that's okay, too. That's yeah. not a moral failing. Have I? No. But... I talk about it. Yeah. Mm. And that's what most of these groups, uh, support groups are about, are about opening your mouth and talking about these things so that it doesn't have to live in secret anymore. Yeah. I think the secrets are the most damaging and toxic yeah. thing about shame, for me at least, mm -hmm. you know. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's what, like, isolates you. When you have secrets and it isolates you, it breaks you away from that community, and then you lose the thing that, like, keeps human beings alive. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, we need connection. Yeah. We're wired for it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like you hit a rock bottom and that's what helped you change? Do people have to hit a rock bottom? Like, what are your thoughts and feelings on rock bottoms? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I don't really know how I feel about it. Yeah. Um, did I hit rock bottom? I don't know what that means. It sure felt like it when yeah. I was there, yeah. <laughs> you know. But had I kept using, there would be a deeper bottom. You know, yeah. I think there's mm -hmm. always a deeper bottom. And unfortunately for some people, they die before they hit it, you mm. know. And so I don't, do I believe there's such a thing as the rock bottom? Probably not. Do I believe that there are difficult situations that motivate and push us to actually make changes in our life? Absolutely. Mm. Um, and I think that's what happened for me. The pain got so unbearable that I was motivated to do anything it took to change my life, you know. Did yeah. you did you get to a point where you realized like, hey, I'm gonna do this and die, or I'm going to do something radically different? Yeah. So I very much the conversation in my head went something like this: I don't want to die. I'm too afraid to die, and I definitely don't want to live like this anymore. And so if I don't want to die, the only choice I have is to try and make a change. Mm -hmm. And you know, I had tried treatment several times before the last time when I finally got sober, and I just wasn't ready. I, I mean, I had my parents pushing me into treatment, mm -hmm. everyone of my, you know, friends telling me, dude, like, you need to go. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I just wasn't ready. And and one of the lessons in that for me is that we can't force anybody to do anything. Yeah. You know, it's mm. just not, it doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't. The motivation has to be intrinsic or it has to be internal. And until you get to that point, it's very hard. And, and what mm -hmm. the work that I do, I work with lots of people who aren't ready to actually stop using or drinking. Yeah. They deserve as much support as somebody who is ready. Yeah. Right? And unfortunately, those people are hurting. And because they're hurting themselves, for some reason, it's like people don't believe that they actually deserve the same support. And I can tell you right now, those people, when they can feel non-judgment and they feel loved and they feel supported and they feel like they can trust you, all of a sudden space opens up. Yeah. And I can be, I, I've talked to people for several months without ever even suggesting or mentioning to them that they stop until they feel comfortable having that conversation. Yeah. And those are the people who stay in treatment. Mm. The ones that are forced there, they, they don't stay sober. Yeah. 
you know, maybe some of them do, but it's not many. And so I guess the work I do right now is less about getting people off of drugs and alcohol and more about letting people know they're loved and okay, you know, regardless of whether they want to change anything in their life or not. Because I still work with people who are severely alcoholic and they know they can call me and I'm not going to try and tell them to stop doing anything that they're doing, but they know that they can call and get support. Yeah. Every single person in this world deserves that. And unfortunately, this society doesn't believe that as a whole. Yeah. We believe in punishing people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we know that that's the exact opposite of someone who's trying to recover from substance abuse needs. Yeah. I mean, to put someone in jail who's struggling with drugs, yeah. what do you think is going to happen? They're going to come back to prison as a violent offender, you know, because prison hurts people. It doesn't rehabilitate mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And until we start, until we stop making this a moral issue, and we start showing compassion towards the people who struggle in this country with substance abuse, it's not going to change, you know? And that really says a lot about us. We need to take a hard look at ourselves in this Mm -hmm. country and decide where are we turning a blind eye to the pain that our society is causing? And what are we okay with? You know, are we okay with these people dying in prison or dying on the streets? Or is it another human being whose life is just as worthy to save as anyone else's? Yeah. How can we support them, not how can we punish them? Yeah. You know, it. I'll talk about that all day long oh, because yeah. it, it, it destroys me. Yeah. And you watch people who are struggling with drugs and alcohol who try to get sober and are stuck in the legal system. Mm. And they have fines to pay and they have to go check in seven times a week and mm-hmm. pee yeah. in a cup and all of this stuff. Yeah. Or even and like they don't have their license, but yeah. they have to, in this community, you need a car in right. order to... Yeah. Right. Lord forbid you work in American Fork, but you live in Provo. Right. Yeah. And How forget are you it get if there? you have a felony on your record. Yeah. Who's like, going to hire you? When you yeah. try to get a job, yeah. and you have to, like, talk about it all. And like, and then that is, you probably feel, like, stigma, like stigmatized all over again in front right. of this person who's, like, judging you if they want to work with you or not. Right. Absolutely. And yeah. so, so society points the finger at you and says, shame on you. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. But <sighs> we're not going to do anything to help you. Yeah. And it's your fault if you fail. Yeah. Mm. You know? That's bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's bullshit. It is. It is. And I think, you know, addiction, we know, I mean, addiction does not care who you are. Yeah. It's in suburbs. It's in cities. It is people who have tons of wealth. It is people who are extremely poor. You know, until we start recognizing that this is not somebody else's problem, Mm. we're going to have a really hard time actually changing anything. Yeah. As soon as we can start recognizing each other as human beings with the same dignity and worth as the next person, we're not going to solve this problem. Yeah. You know, so, and these conversations is where this starts. Yeah. You know, which is why I'm so happy to be here today because, because the conversation is just really needed. Yeah. You know, there's so many people struggling, you know, and, and, and there's so many people struggling with legal stuff. I mean, more people die from alcohol and tobacco-related illness than every other illicit substance yeah. combined. Yeah. And yet, for some reason, there's parking lots in bars so that you can drink and then get behind the wheel of a car. Yeah. And you can go spend $12 on a pack of cigarettes, and nobody's going to ever shame you for doing it. Yeah. It, it's just this arbitrary system that yeah. doesn't help anybody that I think we need to start tearing down so that we can actually start helping one another. Yeah. You know? So I have family members who have, you know, struggled with addiction and friends and, you know, lots of deaths in my childhood. Ooh, and maybe I'm feeling a little uncomfortable because maybe there's this part of me that's coming up where I have shamed individuals for, like, their pain Mm -hmm. and and the way that it's expressing um, or manifesting itself. I'm having a hard time swallowing that one, I think. But do you have any advice for me or for any of our listeners who might feel discomfort with a loved one or a friend or someone in their lives where they see the harm in which they're doing without it being my problem to change them? Or, you you know, do you have any advice on the other side? Because I see the compassion that needs to be there. So what does that support look like? Or what could those conversations be differently to bring... The margins into the center yeah yeah 
I, I mean, I'm glad you asked the question. I think it's a really important one. And, and you know, I recognize, too, like even in my own story, right, I was hurting a lot of the people around me, mm-hmm. the people that loved and cared about me. Yeah. And it was really hard to watch some, me, I'm sure, go down that path and kind of leave this trail of destruction around me. I think one of the greatest things that can be said is, is, is essentially we want you to know how much we love and support you. We want you to know how difficult it is for us to watch someone we love hurt themselves as badly as you are. We want you to know that we're going to continue to do work on ourselves so that we can show up in the best way we can for both ourselves and our families and loved ones. And if you ever feel like that support would be helpful for you, just know that it's always there. Mm. You know, it's just an invitation. I think it's about letting someone know that they're loved and that they're supported. And it's okay to to express the honest truth, which is it's really difficult to watch someone I care about hurt themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's painful. But also letting them know, you know, I see how much pain you're in. I know you're doing the best that you can. And I know you have something that's causing you a lot of discomfort. And if you ever feel like you're ready to, to, you know, find some support or some solutions to that pain, just know I'm available to help you figure out what that is, even if I don't have the answers myself, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not easy, you know. It's it's really, the, the pain hits all of us, Yeah. you know, which is why just like our, our recovery doesn't just belong to us, our addiction doesn't just belong to us, mm-hmm. right? All of these things, we're so interconnected yes, that of yes. course it affects all of us. And yeah. We just have to do the best we can to love each other. You know, yeah. and support one another and, and be kind and non-judgmental. Totally. And I can tell you right now, when I was using, if somebody told me they knew what I was doing and that I didn't need to hide it from them and we could still be okay, mm-hmm. I would be so much more likely to open up and actually share with them. Yeah. I just never felt that I could do that with yeah. anybody because I always felt like I was going to be judged. And so I always hid my pain because it felt like it was socially unacceptable. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so, you know, I just think that that's why destigmatizing all of this is so important because it gives us an opportunity to have a conversation. Mm. Yeah. 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 That's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. You're, of course. I have met a lot of people that are therapists that have done none of their own work. Mm. It's very hard mm-hmm. to show up clearly for somebody else if you haven't. I don't know what the word is, polished your own mirror, you know. Yeah. Um, mm. And and there are a lot of people out there that are therapists that have no business being therapists. Yeah. So finding someone who's done their own work, and I don't know how to tell you to do that. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you if you just have a, a conversation with someone, that's probably the best way to do it. Yeah. I think getting on the phone with somebody and having a conversation and seeing if just even intuitively, like, what does your gut tell you? Yeah. Does this feel like it's a good fit? Yeah. And if it doesn't, be honest with yourself. And mm-hmm. it's okay. The therapist is not going to break down if if you choose not to work with them. Yeah. You know, I personally love working with therapists that have uh, trauma experience, mm-hmm. inner child work experience, are not afraid to go deep into the pain. Yeah. You know, because I, don't get me wrong, things like CBT, they have their place. But essentially, it's just symptom relief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like it's, like I said, clipping those branches of the tree instead of getting to the root. Yeah. And I have found the most relief in my own life through doing inner child work, through doing trauma work, from yeah. addressing those parts of myself that needed my attention so badly, yeah. you know. And so having someone who's comfortable with and familiar with those processes that can guide you um, through mm-hmm. trauma work, um, I think is is incredibly invaluable. And, you know... I think this is something to be said too. Trauma is not does not have to be this huge thing, yeah. right? Like sometimes trauma is when something good didn't happen, right? Yeah. We think when you say do you have trauma to somebody, most of the times you're like, what the hell are you talking? No way, man. Yeah. Most of us have trauma, right? Yeah. And and maybe it's just another word for pain, right? Yeah. yeah. And that's why I think any therapist that has uh, trauma work experience is going to be incredibly helpful because that's where whether it's a behavior that you don't like that you're doing yeah. or another coping strategy whatever it's all stemming from somewhere and until you can go back and actually find where that original pain lives and then have help in healing it you're not going to be able to make lasting change in your life 
yeah. you know, the, the CBT and stuff like that may help alleviate your symptoms, which is great because maybe it'll make your life just better enough that it's manageable. But I want more than that. Yeah. I don't want manageable. Even with my recovery, recovery, in my opinion, is not about not doing drugs and alcohol. It has to be about so much more than that. Yeah. You know, it has to be about finding passion and finding connection and finding clarity and finding self-understanding and creating a life that, you know, most people don't take the time to create for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So I always tell the men and women that I work with how lucky we are to have an addiction problem because it's large enough to make us stop in our tracks and take the time to actually look. Yeah. And most people's pain is bearable enough that they just go through their whole life. You know, I heard someone say, you know, most of us just, you know, we go to high school, we drink some beer and we die. You know, I I need more than that. Yeah. You know. That is so true, though. Yeah. yeah. That that's, that's a hard one. And do you think that's just because of brain development and like learn, like, and we just like some people get caught just in that early experiences and never develop beyond that or yeah. allow themselves to I mean I think it. part of it's cultural too yeah right I mean if you look at most most of this country that's what a lot of people do right yeah. you go to work you complain about work at the bar afterwards you know rinse repeat <laughs> yeah and and I think one of the reasons I struggled growing up so much is because from an early age I didn't buy into that right mm. like for me I was like this isn't enough Mm-hmm. I watched my parents were successful, right? They did well in business and they had all the things. And I always got the thought that there's got to be more than that. And I knew that wasn't going to be enough for me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I tried psychedelics. I tried drugs. I tried all these different things looking to figure out what that more was. And obviously the drugs in an indirect way showed me that because it forced me to actually do this inner mm-hmm. work that brought me closer to understanding the answer to those questions, you yeah. know? So yeah, woo, woo, that's good. Okay, yeah, like that. <laughs> yeah. Part of what you do now, when you're helping work with individuals who are trying to find answers to their own questions, mm-hmm. is you administer. You help administer ketamine, or what? What is? What is that? What does that mean? What does that look like? Yeah. yeah. So I don't administer it myself. It has okay. to be administered by a physician. Okay. Um, but so typically the protocol looks like. Um, Well, it can look like a number of different things. What we know about ketamine and ketamine therapy is that it is most effective when it's combined with additional support, psychotherapy and other supports. A lot of these clinics in Utah, you know, ketamine became legally usable for all of these different off-label uses, such as medication-resistant depression, anxiety, PTSD, and all these things. So these clinics open their doors. And a lot of these clinics, they stick you in a room they hook you up to an IV, they give you ketamine, and they, then you're on your way. Yeah. And you oh. go through that six times, and then they give you a nasal spray to use at home for maintenance, and that's it. Yeah. I have not, I, I don't believe I've seen lasting change mm-hmm. from that type of, of uh, therapy. And so I got into this because I was interested in the healing properties of ketamine and actually holding space for people to do this in a way that was going to be meaningful. Yeah. And so... A lot of times I will go into these clinics with people and actually sit with them and hold space while they're going through the ketamine administration. And then they are given take-home doses as well. Yeah. And I'll go to their homes or they can come to mine sometimes depending on the situation. And I'll actually use a combination of mindfulness and shamanic drumming techniques to help kind of get them prepared for the experience and then help guide them through it very intentionally based on whatever it is they came to work on and then help them to do integration work afterwards so that they can actually make lasting changes in their lives. I've seen too many people say ketamine doesn't work for me, and most of those people haven't actually done it the way it was intended to be done. Mm. So I do this, you know, I'm an advocate for for this medicine when it's used correctly. And so I started this business so that I can help guide people through that process. Yeah because it's an incredible tool, it really is. So when you're, when you mean guiding, so I'm imagining you're in this clinic and you know, the patient or whomever is maybe sitting or lying in a chair and mm-hmm. you're with them, are you, are you speaking with them or are you going off of, is it all just really intuitive or is there like a, a chart of what it looks like? Like, is there like phases of the treatment or, you know, like, yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, there's, I mean, there's definitely not a chart. I mean, there's more, there's some, some 
guideposts. I guess that's the best way to put it. There's a natural arc to the actual experience of ketamine that's very, very predictable. Okay. You know, like kind of the come up period and the peak of the experience and then the come down piece. As far as what someone experiences, it's going to be different for every single person. Okay. So it's not a true psychedelic. It's actually a dissociative medicine, but it actually produces psychedelic-like effects. So a lot of people experience ego loss, um, ego death, kind of feeling that merging with the universe, that oneness, that joy, and that that happiness. For some people, it's actually really kind of scary. The way I interact with that person in the session is based on what they need. So mm. for some people, they need me to shut up, right? They just need me to be quiet and to just hold space. And for them, it's just helpful to know that there's someone who cares about them yeah. there. For other people, they may have a difficult experience and they need a little bit of hand-holding or prompting to just you know, guide them through the difficulty, remind them that they're on a, a medicine and that they're safe and that nothing bad is going to happen and that it will end soon. And oftentimes that reassurance is enough to kind of change the experience into to one that's pretty pleasant, mm -hmm. you know. So in that regard, there there are some general things, you know, to look for, but every single person is different and making sure that I'm very clear and very quiet in my own mind when I go into that space so yeah. that I can really respond thoughtfully and carefully to what's going on in front of me with the person that is actually experiencing that medicine. So yeah. every day is different. Yeah. You know? What um, What does that care look like for you to make sure that yeah. you're in a space to hold space for someone else? Yeah. Like, you like, do you have like a self-care routine? Oh, yes, absolutely. And, you know, part of that routine is is telling somebody if I'm not okay to do it too. Right. Yeah. I have to be honest. And if someone's going to put literally put their, I don't know what you want to call it. I don't want to use an emotionally charged word, but they're going to put themselves, you know, in my care, so to speak. I owe it to them to tell them if I'm not in a good place to do that, yeah. you know. Um, but part of what I do to take care of, I mean, I meditate every single day. Meditation has been hugely important for me. I do a lot of shamanic drumming for myself as well. I do, my wife's uncle holds Lakota Inipi or sweat lodge ceremonies. So I do sweats very often, which again is about, you know, kind of getting quiet and getting still and listening to that voice inside and mm. um, just paying attention, yeah. you know? So all of the, my self-care routines are about getting quiet and getting still and paying attention, mm. you know, about really listening to what's going on inside so that I can address it and there's not this walking conflict when I'm, you know, going wherever I'm going. It's, yeah. it's, um, I think all of these practices are designed to just quiet us down a little bit, you know, yeah. because I don't know about you, but the voice in my head, I've learned two things over the years. One, he doesn't always tell the truth. Yeah. <laughs> and two, he's the worst critic I've ever had. Mm -hmm. Right. And so until I take the time to get quiet enough and still enough to hear and recognize that voice and recognize that that's not the truth, mm. um, I can be fooled really easily, Yeah, you know? Yeah. So it's about challenging that voice. Uh, and for me, that's, that's how I take care of myself, yeah. you know, being in nature too. I mean, we lived in Salt Lake for many years and then we moved up into, we live in Oakley now, up in the mountains in 600 square foot house that we built last year. Um, and it is simple and it is quiet and you know i walk outside and there are deer there and we can walk down the snowy trail up to 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 go hiking and for me that outward quiet environment translates into an inner yeah. you know inner mm -hmm. inner environment that's a lot quieter yeah. now when i come down to salt lake i can't believe how busy it is it's like i I it never used to bother me. And now I come down, I'm like, there's so much noise. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, and like everyone's living on top of each other. Yeah. And Quite I guess literally. I wouldn't have known that had I not moved, right? Because yeah. I was very happy living here when yeah. I did. The contrast is pretty staggering now. Yeah. And it's just getting bigger and bigger, you yeah. know. So yeah. I don't know. For me, nature has been incredibly important in finding that 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 solitude I, or or that quiet, you know. I'm also a person who needs alone time. Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of us have a hard time asking for that. Yeah. But it's important for me. You know, I, I just need some time to kind of just be by myself. And so a couple times a year, I'll go camping by myself for a few days. And that's always been really rejuvenating for me, too. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I love that you ask for what you need. 
Mm. I'm, I'm learning. <laughs> I'm learning. <laughs> yeah, I'm learning that too. And as I'm hearing you talk, I'm like, oh, you're kind of, you're just giving me examples of like how, what you recognize and how you implement that. And I love yeah. that. I love that example. You know, it's funny you say that, like it is so still a practice for me, mm-hmm. right? And like to tell my wife, hey, I'm feeling overwhelmed. I feel like I need some time alone. I'm, I, I really want to go camping for a few days in the desert. Can we find a time that's going to be convenient for me to go do that? It still is not easy for me to do because in my head, that that asshole who talks to me in my head, you yeah. know, <laughs> is like, she's going to think you're abandoning her. She's going to think you're a piece of crap. You're going to leave and something's going to happen. Um, she's going to be mad at you when you get back, but she's not willing to say it, right? Yeah. And I have to challenge that with the actual experiences I've had in the past of, no, it's always been okay. And she's very willing to tell me if something's going on and she needs me here. Yeah. And so the more I open up and practice that, the more I get the feedback that tells me this is okay to do. Yeah. And so it's just practice, you know, yeah. and I'm still learning. Yeah. <laughs> collecting the evidence. Exactly. Collecting the evidence. Yeah. yeah. It has been a delight sitting down, being in your presence, listening to your voice, um, being able to hear like the wisdom that you have learned and being able to share that with us. Like, I really appreciate that. My pleasure. If people, if our listeners want to get a hold of you, like if mm-hmm. they feel like what you shared would be really helpful and impactful for them or someone that they love. How could they find you? Yeah, so I have um, two different websites for my two different businesses. Okay. Um, for my recover- for my mentoring business and, and recovery work, it's um, michaelweissmentoring.com. The ketamine side of my business, it's ketamine, the letter I, S is in Sam, S is in Sam.com. So it's ketamine ISS, which stands for Integration Support Services. Um, they can find me and my contact information on those web pages. You can call me, you can email me, you can text me, you know, and the thing is I might not be the right fit, but the other thing is having worked in this industry for 10 years, Mm. I know, I know so many great people that can help. So don't hesitate to contact me. I will tell you if I'm not the right person and I will help get you to the person who is, um, I want to be a service to this community. And so please let me help you you know, find the support that you're looking for, whether it's me or it's not, just feel free to reach out. We just want to share a big thank you to everybody who helped make this episode possible. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Drop into our DMs. You can find us on Instagram at I totally relate pod. Or you can share your feedback and insights with us at I totally relate pod at gmail.com. We totally want to get to know you. See you next time. Peace out.